and they had this insert on networking communities for women and how impactful they could be. And I was like, yes, this is what I need. And I was looking through all these networking communities and then that was the glaring hole. There was women in business, women in IT, women in law, nothing for women in science or health. So that's really when I was like, well, that I'm going to create that. But yeah, thinking about how, what would that look like and how do you create it? Well, that took a, a good year from when I sat on that plane and then when the first, the Franklin Women website was launched. Welcome to Multiple Hats, a show about STEM professionals who have gone off script and carved their own path beyond the tracks that were set for them. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, medicine, how they found their why and what it takes to make it happen. Today on Multiple Hats, I talk to Melina Georgiosakis, the founder of the Franklin Women, a social enterprise aiming to break the silos in the health and medical sector as well as address the terrible brain drain that sees women in STEM leaving the sector within five years. Following the standard academic pathway, Melina experienced it firsthand, a male-dominated workplace, highly hierarchical, which ultimately saw many women stagnate and then leave the sector to pursue more sustainable careers. This is her story of brewing this big ideal and dream about a healthy medical sector where women can thrive. How she started a social enterprise which now supports so many women across Australia and has over 16 participating partners delivering an award-winning mentoring program, a myriad of events and workshops, each attended by hundreds of women. She takes us through her transition from academic research in vaccine to corporate health policies and how she found a glaring hole when it comes to career development and support community for women in the health and medical sector and in STEM and how she decided that she could fix it. Hear it from Melina on what it took to bring the Franklin women to life and grow it to the vibrant community that it is now. All that while having a family and a corporate job. Let's start from the beginning. What made you chose STEM at the first place? Yes, I did. I had a very traditional science career, actually. So I ended up doing a PhD in lab-based sciences. So I was a medical research scientist developing vaccines, of all things, which is very topical with where we are right now with COVID. But it's really interesting because when I was at school, I had no idea that science or STEM was sort of a career option. And I had no idea what honours and a PhD and that academic career path way was. So it was really very serendipitous how I got there. And I know people say this and you kind of roll your eyes, but I ended up really just following the things that I really enjoyed. I was always a science boffin at high school. The subjects that I chose were physics, chemistry, biology, math B. I had drama in there as a little bit of my outlet, but nothing else really appealed to me. And so it was just natural that when I was picking my university degree that I picked a science degree. And then the path just followed from that. You do your science degree, then there's these amazing research projects you do as honours. So I picked a topic that I was interested in. And then after that, that led to my PhD. So the beginning really flowed with where the pathway was, the traditional pathway. 
but it was only sort of after my PhD when I really understood more about academia that I had a moment to step back and think about, well, is this the career path that's right for me just because it's the career path which I, I ended up on? Yeah, so that's what I really want to talk about because we have when we go to school and there is this question that we ask children all the time, what do you want to be when you are grown up? And that is very anxiety generating because it looks like it's okay. one true calling. And so if you, you're saying, well, I was just curious at school. Those are the topics that I was naturally drawn to. So I went into that degrees. And then when I did a degree, well, what else were I doing after a PhD, right? So did you feel like academia was the path of success? How did you, when, when you graduated, did you see several tracks or you, you just were like, well, when you have a PhD, you go to academia and that's the yeah. track that is laid for me. Yeah. And at the time, you only really got shown that academic career pathway and there weren't really alternative paths made aware to me. It was something that I really had to actively pursue and it was a really challenging time, I guess, when you have invested, you know, eight years almost of higher education and, you know, government funding into PhD stipends, working with your supervisor and a lot of people have invested in your training and sort of the postdoc is the next step and you really wanted to make all those around you proud and succeed in a system that you were basically trained in. But I always had this little inkling that it wasn't for me. I really wanted to make a difference to health. I wanted to have a positive impact on health outcomes for the community. That was my driver. But how I did that, I guess I wasn't really sure of. And the only way I knew was through academia. So I went through a bit of a a stage where I first knew in my heart that it wasn't for me, but I didn't communicate it to anyone else. And then I started sort of having a look at what else was out there. And that's when I had the confidence to start talking to other people to kind of define my own path, I guess. Mm. But what did you think was not for you? What was the component of academia for an audience that is not um, sure about the different path? Yeah, the thing that didn't appeal to me too much at the time was can be very isolating work. So I was in a laboratory. I had the white lab coat. I was doing experiments all day and I was really drawn to people and being able to make science more accessible. And I used to do a lot of work going to schools because the way that I thought of a scientist when I was in high school was sort of that stereotype of sort of Einstein, this crazy looking curly haired geek with pocket protectors. And that's not really inspiring when you're thinking of a career path if you're a young girl. And so I used to spend a lot of time going out to schools and corporate groups and speaking about my research, but not in context of a scientific journal that was very technical and only other scientists would read, but more making it in a way that the general public could understand from two perspectives so we could inspire future scientists that were more different to the ones who were leading scientific research at the time, but also so people really understood why research was important and the amazing people who were dedicating their lives to doing it. So that was the first thing that realized I was getting more reward being out of the lab than in the lab. But then this, I wasn't quite clear on the skills that I had because I was trained in the lab as a scientist. So doing Western blots and all these scientific experiments we're really good on paper for a science job, but I didn't really understand what were these transferable skills that could be taken to other jobs where I could have a positive impact on health. So it was these first little insights that made me think, you know what, this isn't where I could see myself forever. 
but I know I can still make a difference in other ways. Right. So more drawn to people and communicating the science rather than performing it day in, day out. Okay. So then academia, we're looking for something different and you decided to go to corporate at that point. No, I did a little transition in the middle, actually. For about seven years, when I first realized I wanted to leave the lab, I wasn't ready to completely leave academia. So I did my PhD at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research up in Queensland, Australia. And I found this amazing research institute in Sydney. And it was based on a hospital campus, so very interface with clinical care. But what they also did is a lot of policy advice. This organization was the National Center for Immunization Research and Surveillance. And basically, they were doing policy advice around how we use vaccines in Australia. And it was amazing because for me, I thought, well, I have all this technical expertise on vaccine design and development. So I understand the vaccine products and the science behind it. I understand how to look at literature or evidence around vaccines. And I love communicating. I love talking. I love writing. So for seven years, I worked at the National Centre in a role that was calling upon all my lab-based training. But I sat at a desk and I wrote advice for government on how they should implement vaccines in a safe and effective way for the Australian community. And I absolutely loved it. I learned so much and it was the first time that my eyes got open to all of the career path that are required to get good science to positive health outcomes for the community. And in my head at the time when I was in the lab, I thought there's only lab, there's only research, research, and then it helps people. But that's not true at all. There's so many other players and steps and processes that need to be involved before good science can result to helping people. And NCs was the door opener for me to see that that can happen. Yeah, that's amazing to see what, what we can discover when we decide to actually move and get momentum. So that opened you the role to vaccine policies. So, and did, was that what you expected when you went to that different role coming from academia? No, it wasn't because I, I really had no idea. And it was interesting because the good thing about NCs is it was I still had one foot in academia. They still did research, but it was different research. It was epidemiological research, public health research, but it still had the research element. So I had one foot in the research arm still, but then there was also the policy side of things and they were funded by government. So it meant that I wasn't in the cycle of academic research, which I really didn't like, which was about publishing papers and applying for grants and you're not having a job unless you could get successful research grants. So because NCS was funded by government, I had some stability and certainty, which was really positive for me. And it really gave me an opportunity to not rush my job because I was trying to get lots of papers, but I got to be able to really sit and learn and understand basically science translation and how to write good policy advice. So I had no idea what it meant, but at the end of it, I had the best experience. I also, like I said before, it gave me this opportunity to realize that there was so many other career paths out there and so many organizations that play a role, which led to my next career move, which was in the corporate. Mm, yeah, right. So it's good because then you had a, a bit of a transition from academia yes. to a intermediate academic setting and then corporate. So 
And let's talk about the corporate then, because you talked about the transferable skills. So now suddenly you've got more arrow to your bow. And then how did the corporate came about? That was definitely not something that I was really looking for, but an opportunity presented. And it was a very strategic one for me. And what it made me realize when I left the lab and then had the job at NCS was if I really wanted to have a career where I could have the biggest impact on health, I really had to understand how the system worked and that there's multiple players involved in health. And I really knew the academic research side and, and the public health side, the public hospital side, but I had no experience with understanding how the private sector worked and how private healthcare companies work and health insurers. There are all, there's this whole other corporate contribution to health that I didn't understand. And I felt that like you mentioned about getting sort of feathers in your hat, I needed to experience the other side if I really was going to be able to have a career where I could bring all these players together and understand how to rate them so that I could do whatever I wanted to do down the track. So when I had this opportunity to move to a health insurance company, they had a charitable arm when they invested in health and medical research and there's more funding available, more training opportunities, different players that I'll get access to. And so I thought, you know what, I'll take this leap of faith. I'll give it a go. I was really worried what people would think that I'd gone to the dark side and all of the, you know, negative stereotypes that are still out there about working for corporate when you want to do something like health. But after moving to this role, I stayed there for about four or five years. You know, it did change my perspective. I did learn a lot. And now I understand how they contribute so that I can bring all the parties together, which I try and do through Franklin Women. What made you think about the Franklin Women? Franklin Women was launched when I was still at NCS, actually very early on in that policy job. There was a few things that happened at that point, which really sparked Franklin Women and when I decided to launch it. So why was these problems that you observed that you thought really had to be addressed? Well, because my role at NCS was, like I mentioned, the first time that I was out of a very traditional academic environment. So it was the first time that I realized that there were so many like-minded people working around Australia who were committed to improving health for our communities, but they worked in different roles, different organizations, different disciplines, but they had the same mission, but they never, ever, ever came together unless it was very discipline focused, like a conference. But mostly there's very strong silos, which don't get broken down. And I had realized when I left the lab and then took the policy role, that if I understood how vaccine policy was made in Australia when I was in the lab, I would have designed my vaccines completely different. So if that silo was broken down for me at the time and I had those relationships or understood that these organizations existed, it would have completely changed how I was designing the vaccine in the first place. And so it made me realize how important it was to create a space to break down those silos. That was the first thing. And then the second thing, the time when I started it, I was a couple of years in at NCS, and two things that happened. First was I was personally, my life was evolving. So I'd met a partner. We were thinking about getting married, buying houses, having children. 
And then when I started thinking about all of these things, I felt, oh my gosh, they will really get in the way of my career. And I really wanted to have this long, impactful career. And so I can't take a career break. Then the other side of things was I also felt, well, actually, I can't even buy a house because I'm on short-term contracts. And there was all these things that just that happened in people's lives that didn't really support a career in health and medical research at the time or sciences. And then I was actually thinking again, like, well, maybe I have to leave. Maybe I have to do something completely different. And then there was a lot of my peers who were women who started, and this is sort of an internal dialogue, who were starting to come up to me and say, oh, you know, I actually am thinking of leaving research or they had these like international consortiums that were like changing the world. And then they were thinking of leaving. And then I started doing a bit more research and I realized that how much of a gender bias there was in science. So I knew it historically when I was a PhD because everyone at the top were old white men. There were some few women leaders, but few people of color, but really they're the minority. And so you sort of can't be what you can't see. But that was anecdotal. But at that time when I realized that all my peers who were women were thinking of leaving, I was like, what is going on? And so I started to look at the evidence and pulled out data that was available. And in health and medical research, we actually have an overrepresentation of women early on. So university, PhDs, but when they start progressing in their careers at the same trajectory as their male peers, you get to about this midpoint, it's called a scissor graph, and then all the women sort of, you get this mass attrition, yet men in their careers just keep on progressing with this very strong career trajectory. So you actually, women stagnate at a certain point or they get completely pushed out of the sector. And then when I saw that, I was like, well, this is ridiculous. I could Mm. be pushed out and I don't want to be. And a lot of the women around me could be pushed out. And what a loss of this amazing talent. They could be the next person to come up with the next, you know, treatment or intervention. So then I started Franklin Women. I thought, what about if you can bring, create a community, a support community for these women and bring these role models together but make it very diverse because for me, it wasn't just about losing them from academia. Academia is not a sustainable career path for everyone, but it was making sure we don't lose them from the whole ecosystem. So if we brought together women working in all sorts of different roles, policy like I was doing, maybe government, funding agencies, not-for-profit, comms, tech, then at least if somebody had this passion to make a difference and they didn't feel academia was the role for them, they were more aware of people and avenues where they could get new opportunities. So we didn't lose them from the sector altogether. So a little bit of a career incubator, knowing what's out there. Exactly. And getting connection to get there also. Yeah, but in an informal way, because if you do it in a formal way, like come together for this career incubator, you know, people like, oh, I'm just doing my career so I don't have time for that I don't need that but it was if you created this sort of community where people can come together and learn new skills as well so a big focus on Franklin women is professional development so the other thing I realized is in my science career I was got a lot of training on the technical sciences but no one was giving me any of these soft skills I was expected Mm. to lead teams with no training I was expecting to manage budgets. I was expecting to be a thought leader and do media. 
I was expecting to have courageous conversations and understand diversity and inclusion, but there was no opportunities to get that training. So that was Franklin Women, a, a networking community that provided training outside of the sciences. And that was 2014 and the rest is history. Wow. Yeah, it's a while ago. Okay, so you find your why this way and it's very obvious on the impact that it can have on all these women in STEM. But what I'm interested about now is once someone has an idea like that of creating a big community all across Australia, it sounds like, you know, a big thing. Say, how did you fledge it further and, and how, what did you do next? Okay, I've got this big idea. What do I do next? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's right. That's the, I actually sat on this big idea for a year. So I, I had the idea, like I, I realized there was a problem, but the so, possible solution of this networking community came about from reading a book. So I was on a plane and I read two books. One was like a self-help book. It was called Do Cool Shit. And I bought it on at their airport bookshop. And I also bought a Mary Claire magazine because I love Mary Claire. And they had this insert on networking communities for women and how impactful they could be. And I was like, yes, this is what I need. And I was looking through all these networking communities. And then that was the glaring hole. There was women in business, women in IT, women in law, nothing for women in science or health. So that's really when I was like, well, that I'm going to create that. But yeah, thinking about how, what would that look like and how do you create it? Well, that took a, a good year from when I sat on that plane and then when the first, the Franklin Women website was launched. But the first thing for me was just testing it with people. I talked to my friends, I'd be at NCS, would you join this? And then I started like, you know, drawing pictures and thinking about what I wanted and building a website, which I had no experience in whatsoever. But it got to the other big thing that took me forever was trying to find a name because the name was really important to me. I wanted it to have a really strong meaning, but I, I didn't want it to be an acronym. I really wanted Franklin Women to not be an academic organization. So I didn't want it to have like women in science and health in New South Wales or an acronym. I wanted it to be fresh. I wanted it to be strong and I wanted it to have a meaning. So it was really important to me. So I spent a lot of time trying to think of the name and it ended up named after Rosalind Franklin, who was an x-ray crystallographer back in the UK, actually, who discovered that the structure of DNA is a double helix. But, you know, there's a really big story behind that around her research getting stolen and her not getting the credibility for her work. Very topical. Yes, exactly. So I love that it had a meaning and everything was in place about a year later, but I just didn't launch it because I was really nervous about it failing, basically. Not failing, but I was just like, what if I what if I launched this organization and no one joins? Well, it's a membership organization. And I think that's an important thing to maybe mention from the beginning. Because I was so burnt from academia, I did not want this. I wanted the organization to be self-sustaining. I wanted it to raise revenue or bring in income to fund us to deliver our services. And that was for two reasons, because I didn't, I'd I was had my career. So Franklin Women had to sustain on on the side. It didn't need to fund me because I had a job, but to the, to the website hosting and organizing events and all of the bits and pieces that go with it needed funding. 
And I didn't want to be applying for grants. I wanted it to be a self-sustaining organization. And I also set it up as a business. So it wasn't a not-for-profit. And that was another really strong statement that I wanted to make because once I started understanding more about our sector, there was this real distaste about money and making money in health. And, you know, for a lot of the outcomes that we want to happen, there needs to be sustainability and commercialization of them. And so I wanted to demonstrate that you can make money, but with a social purpose. So the money that we raised for Franklin Women, it wasn't a not-for-profit. We're not a charity. I don't want people having to donate to us. We are a social enterprise. We have services to raise money and those money are not to go into this amazing boat or whatever else or shareholders. Mm. The money goes back into our mission and that's to invest in women. So that was a really another big distinction point that I had decided. There's a lot of pros and cons to that now. Um, I'm really saying that's right. Women business does not have to be your charity. And we heard that a lot, um, this stereotypical narrative around women that this is not a sustainable business or that there's no money to be made. And, and that's true across different industries. And striking example that I can think of is include the, the movie industry. You know, 10 years ago, it was implied that female-led movie could not make revenue. And yet the Hunger Game, um, those movies made over 3 billion worldwide and each movie more than the rest in James Bonds. So, there is revenue to be made there. And another telling example is the fashion industry. Um, Sarah Lafleur founded MM Lafleur, a very successful company making garment for professional women. Um, very simple, professional garment for professional women. And when she was raising money, investors told her that this was not a good market for investment. So you're thinking 50% of the population engaging in paid work isn't a good market for investments, then what, what market is then? So there is this thing about anything that is about women is not profitable or it should be non-for-profit. So I really like that you've actually made that yeah. constant choice. But I also hear that that has implication in the functioning of the company. Do you want to touch on that? Yes. And it's something that probably didn't become apparent until later years because, like I said, I didn't need an income for me for Franklin Women. And I also had no idea how successful if the need was there. So it just needed to be able to cover its costs and deliver what we wanted to deliver for the women in our sector. And that was fine. Like for the first sort of five years, you know, it, it was something that I did on the side of my own career. When I transitioned to Booper, I was still doing it on the side, the health insurer. I had my two kids in between there as well. I had a, a little girl, Zoe, and a little son, Atlas. And so it was something that I did to keep me, you know, mentally engaged during my two mat leaves. And then that was fine. But then it started growing and which is really positive because you want to know that you're meeting a need, but it was growing to the point that it was beyond something I could do on the side. Mm. And it was a really big point, a turning point for me because I started to realize well, Franklin Women's growing to this really impactful organization, which is great, but I'm currently doing it when my kids are napping or in my lunch break or at the evenings when I got to bed. And it was a really thriving social enterprise being done ad hoc. And I felt like I wasn't giving it its full potential of what it could achieve. And I was basically drowning as well. And then I had my day job 
and I was drowning at that. And then I had kids and I was drowning at that. So something had to change. Yeah. So let's go back to that. So you've got a full-time job. Yeah. Part-time. Three days part-time, a week. Three days a week. Okay. And two kids. Two kids. And how many hours do you need to take this Franklin woman thing? Like you say, you did that on the site for five years. How many hours more or less per week? Like, you know. Oh my gosh, any spare time that I had, which is why it was just getting all consuming. Like I'd get up before work and before the kids are up and work on it. Then I'd have my lunch break and I'd work on it. And then, you know, the two days that I had the kids on the Thursday and Friday, I'd put them to sleep and I'd work on it. And it was got to the point that I, there was every minute that I had spare, I was having to do, I was having to, I was wanting to do Franklin women, but it wasn't efficient. And it was stressful because, and I couldn't serve everyone that I wanted to because I was not replying to emails and I felt like I was letting people down and the mission down and no one felt that, but I could see that happening. Mm. So that's when one I realized. One woman show? One woman. Well, no, at about maybe a couple of years before I went full time, we had raised enough revenue through our services and I still had a paid job at that time that we were able to bring on our amazing accounts and admin officer. So she worked casually for us in a paid capacity, fully funded by Franklin Women. And then we also brought on an events and initiatives lead to, to do a lot of the day-to-day stuff so I could do the higher level stuff in a volunteer capacity. So we did, we were able to grow it and I'm very proud of that. And it wouldn't have continued if I couldn't because I couldn't have done everything. Okay. So at this point, five years in, you grew to more than just a side hustle, much yeah. more than that. You've got one admin officer and yourself, so two people, and it is sustainable as it has its own revenue. It is. It had its own revenue and we also had an events and initiatives league. So there was three of us and it was sustainable enough which you could pay out two casual team members, pay for operation costs and deliver what we were what we were doing while I had my day job. Right. And so you didn't need to add any of your own funds. You know how sometimes startups had to raise money with friends and family. It wasn't like this. No, I wanted it to be funded on its own from the beginning. Like fair enough, I, you know, I paid for the website at the beginning and small little things like that. But from when it launched, it has funded its activities itself. Okay. So for our audience who is looking to create their own things, you don't have to start big. You can have a couple of thousand of dollars, you know, just launch website and stuff like that. Yeah. And then you had this business model in mind that would be self-sustainable and that is through doing the event and the membership. Is that your business model? Yes, and also organizations as well. So partnerships basically are a big part of how we raise revenue. So we have our membership base, which is our individual members. We deliver events and initiatives, which are a fee-for-service. So our mentoring program is another example of something we deliver, which comes at a cost, not a large cost, but there's a cost. And then we have a lot of ecosystem partners. So we have organizations who employ women in our sector who become a partner with Franklin Women and we do a lot to support them to basically, it's like a collective alliance because there's no point upskilling and empowering and mentoring women in our sector and then sending them back to organizations where they don't have a a culture that basically wants them to get to the top or fully participate so Mm. the organizations are a big component of what we do as well right so I I see a quite complete business model there how did you come up with that like did you have some help did you have your own skills in business 
no skills in business whatsoever. So scientists, true and true. And I didn't do any further training, which maybe I should have in hindsight, but I did a lot of research. I guess that's what, I, what I'm trained to do. So I went and looked at all the models out there of similar organizations, maybe organizations that weren't for women, but that ha- were doing other innovative things. And, and it also evolved, like we only did individual memberships and events. Then we added our initiatives, like workshops and training, and then we added our partner organizations. And now we're going through another stage of iteration as well. So it did evolve, but always by watch, I joined other membership communities for women in business and IT. I saw what I liked. I saw what I didn't like. I subscribed to so many diversity and inclusion newsletters, like always making sure I was looking what other sectors were doing and what would work for ours, what wouldn't, and then what could if I tweaked it appropriately. Mm, yeah, yeah, so research and learning from other and then making your own patchwork, really. Yeah. So good. So we're five years, we have a sustainable business model, we're growing, but we can't do it on our own, on three people. Then, okay, what's the next stage? The next stage was myself leaving my paid job. So that happened sort of halfway through COVID in Australia. So I did that about a year and a half ago now. When I realized that couldn't keep all the balls in the air, there was an opportunity for me to choose what was going to go. Obviously, my kids and my family were number one priority for me. And I had a paid job, which we obviously need an income. And then I had a non-paid job within Franklin Women, but was very rewarding and a passion and also just professionally something that's really allowed me to shine and show my potential. Whereas when I was in my academic roles or my other roles, they had a very defined hierarchy that you sort of had to go through this ladder of success. And it was really limiting my potential. And so Franklin Women gave me the opportunity to show my potential. And I really didn't want to let it go either. So it was a family decision. Basically, I spoke to my partner And we had made a decision together that the only way for me to see if Franklin Women has the potential to grow and be sustainable beyond where it was, was for me to set some time to go all in on the organization, acknowledging that it would be without an income. And we agreed that we could do this for a year. It's a year and a half now because I had six months that disappeared because I was with my children during lockdown. So the end of this year was sort of this this period that we said, okay, we'll just pretend it's like another mat leave. We made a deal about how we would divide and conquer with our home life because my husband then had a lot of responsibility for income. And I left my paid job. And yeah, so this has been the last 12 months, which has really just been focused on at first a bit of recovery for me. And then the next stage was basically growth and sustainability and getting some seed funding to transition up into a more sustainable model. Right. So that step is the most daunting. And I'm thinking from a point of view of the audience, when you're thinking about growing your own business and leaving your income, I think that's the most daunting, especially as you describe with a house and two kids, because obviously you're not as free to, to go and do whatever you like. So I guess what you just said is quite important. You have a deadline for it to work. Is the deadline helpful or daunting? Helpful. I needed a helpful because I could, it was helpful because I could bring others along the journey. Otherwise it's nebulous and I love what I do and I treat it like a job. Like, you know, 
I work at Franklin Women like I'm being paid. So it's, you know, intensive, but I would just keep doing it forever like this. Mm, <laughs> and until, yeah. But it, you can't because I had to be, you know, I can't, I had to speak to myself like I would be speaking to the women in our community, which value what you do. Think about your own independence and my finances and my, you know, super and all of these things. And so I've had a lot of lovely feedback from people who've said, you've got to look at yourself, like what you empower women in your community to be like. So I've, I've had to be very strict around it and say, this is what we are committed as a family. And it's important for my partner and my children as well. Otherwise it's scope creep. They'll be 10 years later and I'd be doing mm. this for free because I love it and it's making a difference. And why would you want to stop it? <laughs> and any advice for someone who wants to take that step, but it doesn't see how to make it work financially. Is, is there, I don't know, resources, renting your car, anything yeah. that you can think of that you need to make it work? Uh, yeah, ours were little practical things, you know, like, you know, it's silly, but like we put our home loan on ins- insurance only and, you know, we did a lot of refinancing and, and just small things. I still pay for childcare because it's pointless me doing Franklin Women while I've got kids big around. Impossible, yeah. It's... Yeah wouldn't go anywhere. But I think it was just being very strict and disciplined in that, you know what, this is, we can go as a family for this long. And, you know, there's small things that I did some contract work here and there to just pick up a little bit of extra money. But I think it's just that discipline of, and going out, like I really focused everyone who's in a position who knows Franklin Women. I've said, you know, we're focusing on sustainability. I had to feel like I was letting people down because you know, we weren't able to deliver as many events as we usually do, but our community is so supportive. They want us to succeed and I really try and bring them along the journey and communicate what we're doing and where we're at. And people know their memberships and our partner organizations are investing in us to continue and do what we do. Mm. Um, I wouldn't be here at all if I didn't have our two team members who do so much of the day to day so I can lift up and try and do the pitches and the business plans and the and the partnership meetings. So we're just all in. We know what we're working towards. And I think without that date and that goal, you can't, you're working towards the same mission and you know why. Yeah. Amazing. So you're in this very exciting stage now that mm-hmm. you're growing for more sustainability and full-time jobs. So is that your ambition that you can lead Franklin Women sustainably for yourself or so and continue to do that? Or are you looking at an exit strategy? No, that's the plan. We've got all three, you know, we we know what we're working towards and that's for me to be has a paid role, which will then allow me to continue to do it. And then the other paid roles that we need for it, we think that we need to have a full skill composite to allow it to grow. So we've already mapped that out and what that total revenue that we need to fill those roles and a little plan on how we're going to do that and the support that we need. But then we, of course, it's unrealistic to not put the other options on the table. So there's exit strategies of how we can keep Franklin Women going, but maybe without that sustainability funding that we need, or there is closing it, which we don't want to do. So yeah, we've really mapped out the options, but we know the one we're working towards and priority one. Okay, but you you have mapped them out, which yeah. I think is quite important because while well, we want to have the great plan A, it's it's great to at least contemplate exit strategy also that are still sustainable for the business itself. And so great, funding, how difficult it is to get funding, how much work do you have to do, pitching, what kind of funding is available for an organization like the Franklin Women? Yeah, 
That's a good question. There's a few different routes that you can take for organizations like Franklin Women. So we're a social enterprise. One thing that has been limiting is that we are not a charity. So a lot of the grants and initiatives do have a restriction on that you needing need to be a charity. And we have reviewed whether we change our corporate structure to be a not-for-profit. And I'm not 100%. I know it would open up a lot of opportunity, but that original vision for it, I haven't got my arm twisted behind my back to forego that yet so that I mm. can get access to a few other grants. But there are a lot of grants now in that impact investing space and also for founders and small businesses where I think there is a big focus on, from the economic perspective of supporting more commercialization of ideas, small business founders, and particularly women founders. So I've applied for a number of government grants, which are for boosting female founders. There's a lot of STEM grants now that are really focused on gender equity as well. So just really finding the right ones for our organization has been our focus rather than basically rapid firing and applying for everything, just making sure that we really spit the brief, but also really understanding who other organizations or the, the funders who we're benefiting. So obviously we do a lot and being strategically pitching to those. So we've done a number of pitches to government because obviously the sector that we are supporting is basically the health and medical research workforce in New South Wales and beyond. And so also keeping them all in jobs and having higher innovation and not losing top talent is essential, as we've seen for COVID, for both health and economic prosperity. So it was really thinking who benefits from what we do and having conversations with them. And that's led to some excellent outcomes. We've got some funding to help us develop a business plan because we didn't have the capacity to do that while we're delivering everything. And that will be a really important document to help us then go to that next stage. But also a number of philanthropic funders as well and really looking at those who are aligned with disadvantage, social impact and medical research. So really spending our time to speak to the right people and have had a lot of positive outcomes come from that as well. So it's been a learning curve. You know, we don't have a million dollars in the bank just yet, but we're working towards it. Yeah, and, and so you design your pitch and, and it's a long process, I imagine. It is. But I think in hindsight too, every conversation, every pitch, they don't always lead to something tomorrow. But if I look back at where we've come now in the last year, we now have a fully prepared business plan for our sustainability in two years' time. We have had wraparound support for a social impact measurement framework, which we wouldn't have had. We've expanded to the ACT through seed funding to allow us to do that. We've got a potential site at a bioaccelerator where we can house Franklin women. So while I've been on the journey, it's been very stressful. And yes, no, nothing led to an immediate you know, injection of funds. But if I look back to see where we are, we are in such a different position than where I was 12 months ago. And that's through building relationships and having conversations, which have all led to something which collectively have got us where we want to go. Mm. And look, I think it's really important what you just said about looking back, because sometimes it's frustrating to see slow progress or what we perceive as slow progress. Yeah. But then looking back, it's, it's a big achievement. Well, that sounds super exciting. I hope you, you know, it all works and that the Franklin will continue to deliver all these workshop and mentoring programs who I also benefit from and I know many other women benefit from. So that, that's really exciting to hear. 
Thinking on the mindset of, you know, success and failure. And when you started, you said, I started small from a website and then you just kept growing and growing. But did you ever think at some point, I want to give up? It's too hard. Yes, many times. <laughs> Every two years, probably. No, definitely. Not that I'm a perfectionist, but I worry. I really want to make a difference. And so there's two reasons why I felt like it's all too hard. One is just personal circumstances, like very feeling very stressed and overwhelmed and feeling the weight of the success of this organization and just hearing from people about how it's impacted their lives keeps me going. But then just my personality type, I also carry that with me in that if it doesn't succeed or keep going, I don't want that support for these women to be gone because I started Franklin Women for them and for me because I, you know, I felt like we we're all worth investing in. So I do carry that burden, which no one else puts on me but myself. So I put a lot of pressure on myself for it to be successful. So if I feel like I ever think that that's not happening or it's not having the impact that it has the potential to, I can feel like, oh, no, you know, I'm just going to throw it all in because it's not working and it's not helping people. But then I get the next email from someone who tells me a story or how it's touched their lives and then it motivates me to keep going. And then the personal ones is just, you know, having little people, making time for your partner, trying to make time for exercise, all of these things that are really important but always get pushed to the end. And sometimes I lift my head up and I'm like, what am I doing? You know, in five years' time, I need to be happy and healthy too. And particularly if I don't get that investment in Franklin Women, I'm like, people don't see it's important, so then why am I, you know, busting my butt to make it happen? So it does get very difficult at times. But then I get Mm. this new motivation and determination that comes from that when I come out of the low, then I get more motivated, unfortunately, maybe, to my own disadvantage but it's been I don't know I'm not really really ready to give up on it yet but when I when it is or if it ever has to happen it's because I've tried everything else first yeah so the strong purpose keep you going really Uh that's what it is yeah and the feedback of the people could you can see directly the impact going back on failure again so we getting roller coaster off I want to give up but no I'm driven what's the biggest flop that happened during this all years biggest flop oh I try things all the time I think what I have learned so we always get feedback from our community probably too much because I'm a researcher by training I'm always doing interviews and surveys and try and make sure that we meet everyone's needs and one of the things that I've learned is you can take on feedback and you need to but at the end of the day running the organization I know what works and what doesn't and a really good example of like little like flops would be really trying to think about accessibility of our events and everyone's very different got different schedules but particularly for women who are carers you know we do a mix of events so we try and do morning ones and evening ones and webinars in the middle of the day but for our face-to-face events we got a lot of feedback to do them during the day because of the caring responsibilities and I know and you know that your intention to go to a one and a half hour lunch just purely for networking and learning is a wonderful idea when you register it. But then you drop the kids off at childcare, you're sitting there in the middle of the day, you've got this meeting, that meeting or that experiment and everything goes over and you want to get out on time, you're going to ditch that event, right? You're not going to go. So I really wanted people to think I listened and I thought, oh, so I did, we did do a lunchtime networking event and we had a lot lower 
number of people registered than normal. I think it was like 70. We usually get over a hundred, but then on the day, like 35 turned up and it, it's okay in context of those 35 people got what they needed, but from the mission of Franklin Women and our sustainability, it costs a lot for us to put on events. You get food and you need a venue and everything. So we, we wouldn't, we didn't cover our event costs. And if we can't do that, then I can't deliver another one. But also there's a, that community and vibe element and having a hundred women, like-minded women and networking in the room versus 30 in a big space in the corner. So that was a really big learning curve for me. And to me, it wasn't a flop, but you know, having 120 people turn up versus 30 is very different, but it was something that has stuck with me in that I've really got to look the sustainability of Franklin Women and operating and implementing it plus taking on feedback. And so now we've learned that there's other ways that we can do it. We always alternate our events over the year with morning and evening because some work better for others. And we have started doing a series of virtual things during the day, but we realize if you're going to do it during the day, it has to be something that's virtual. So rather than just picking a time that technically should be better for everyone. It's giving variability of format and time and plenty of notice is our way to try and make them accessible. So that was a big learning. Mm, hard to please everyone. Yeah. And as we say, we have the enthusiasm bias where we're like, oh yes, that definitely go. And then and then yeah. you can like hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all been there. Good. Okay. Well that's good. And as you say, it's not a flop, but it's definitely not something you can reproduce too many times. No. Now, thinking about privilege and hard work, I like people to reflect on their journey. And, you know, you talk a lot about gender bias, inclusion and diversity, people in minority. And I wonder if you look at your own journey, what do you think is the product of pure hard work? What do you think are some of the privileges that helped you? And on the other side, what do you think is a barrier that you've experienced that other people may not? Yes. Barrier has been obviously, unfortunately, gender, but something that I was not aware of early on, but I've got a number of examples of unconscious bias and how it influenced my career early, early on. The opportunities that were given me compared to a male peer, you know, they got to review abstracts, I got to organize the catering, you know, little things like that, which that's a blim of all and on their own, sort of not terrible, but collectively they all add up so that unconscious sort of bias was definitely one but I've only recently been aware of it but I think just having little people and being the primary carer and you're not always able to be at the table or be always take advantage of every opportunity and again I pick and choose what's important and then always have those conversations with my husband so when there's something that's 100% important I need to be there we make it work but there's a lot of other little things that you know, you're just not always able to be present. So I think they're the two big things. Also, I guess with funding for Franklin Women, you know, being a woman pitching for a women's base issue, I think there's a lot of layers of disadvantage when it comes to female founders. I'm just going to pose on this one because I think it's worth mentioning that female fund investment attracts only 2.2% of the world's venture capital funding. See. Hey, you already come to a big disadvantage. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And then again, when you're servicing women's needs and women's issues, then I think that adds to that layer. 
again. But I think it's definitely changing and there's a lot of conversations of visibility. But when you're going through it, it doesn't feel like changing. But on a whole, it has. Hard work versus privilege. I've just recently been very aware of allyship and privilege and really understanding your privilege. And I think I come from a very you know, place of privilege. Yes, I'm a woman, but I'm a white woman. I'm middle class. I'm able to do Franklin women because, you know, my husband has a job which can sustain us in the short term and I can get childcare. And there's all of these enablers for me that have allowed me to do what I do. And I'm becoming more aware of them as I learn more around inclusion and how we can create environments that are supportive of everyone. And being aware of privilege is one of those big things. And I'm on a journey of learning and I'm, I'm actually loving understanding it more. But then on that personal side of where I am in my, you know, little wheel of, of privilege, I've been thinking about this idea of this locus of control and the good things happen to us or you are in charge of your destiny and your outcome. And I think a lot of the time when, you know, I get an accolade or an achievement or something happens with Franklin women, you would say, oh, I'm so lucky or I'm so fortunate or you know, so grateful for these opportunities. And, you know, I had some good people around me. One of them, Dharmika, who is a female founder and does a lot in the med tech space. And she's someone who said to me a, a lot of the times when she's congratulated me and I've said something like that, she's like, you've worked bloody hard. And it's nice to have people who remind you. It's like, well, I am fortunate. I am lucky, but actually I've worked so hard. And so a lot of what I've achieved is because I have, you know, really applied myself to something that I'm passionate about and put myself in uncomfortable positions, challenged myself, grown. And so, you know, I have to acknowledge my individual contribution to it as well, which I'm trying to own. So even saying that is part of the process. (laughs) Congratulations on your journey. I'm all about that because I think both things are very important, knowing your privilege, because it's true, we all have privilege. And I think giving back in somehow, it's it's a way to acknowledge them, which you are doing because the work of a Franklin Women will also help women in difficulties in STEMs that may also benefit from that. But also acknowledging our hard work. I hear from you, everything that you said, it's motivation, purpose, discipline, 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 consistency, consistency, consistency. So it, and, it, and it's on a long time, right? So we can all do a little sprint of discipline and consistency, yeah. but then beyond that, the one who succeed are the ones who can maintain that on a long, long time. Yeah. And, but then also thinking that you can do it and nothing in your life has to change either. Like, I guess there is, there's sacrifices and there's no founder who started something who didn't have to sacrifice something along the way and it's just when your own personal thresholds when that sacrifice is no longer worth the return and then that changes yeah it's evolving it's evolving um just that all the hard work aside like i think just being guided by what you said something that brings you joy and something that you're really passionate about and feel like that uses your skill it's a fluffy thing for people to say, follow your purpose, follow what you love. And when people said that to me, I was like, oh, yeah, right. And, but then that looking back thing, it's like, well, when you are, I re- was really true to my values and both professionally and personally is, is really guided me to where I am today. So it does make sense, even though it sounds very at the time. Yeah, it doesn't ring true until you actually live it and it falls together. I think this is when finally you're like, 
Yeah, start with why. People are right, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to leave me with a book and a song? Oh, a song. Oh, just anything Beyonce. Like I've got every one of Beyonce's albums. Hold Up's my favourite one. So I'm definitely not old school at all. But if I'm feeling down or I need motivation or feel like I can take over the world, I just listen to Beyonce and it fixes it. The book, one that I'm reading at the moment, is called She Said That. And basically it's a book that recites powerful speeches of women over history from Florence Nightingale to Michelle Obama. They're really diverse, but the author talks about it in context of how they put that speech together. And I love it because I learn about constructing a powerful and evoking speech. But also I've got to read these amazing presentations or speeches from history that I never would have otherwise been able to listen to. So it's a, it's a fabulous book. She said that. I recommend it. This was Melina Georgisakis, the founder of The Franklin Women. Academia is a tough path to take, and unfortunately, many women get pushed out of the health and medical sector when life starts to evolve. Precarious in short funding cycles, eternal chasing of publisher parish diverting researchers' time from the actual meaningful research, lack of permanent contracts, which is often incompatible with financial stability or even buying your own place. That's the reality of many researchers in academia, which eventually is causing a brain drain. Changing the whole functioning of academic research is another conversation that we can and should have. But Melina decided that she could help retain talents in the health and medical sector by creating a community of women and bringing together all the different players in the ecosystem to break the silence and facilitate career movement within the sector rather than outside of it, which ultimately is helping having a bigger talent pool to drive actual health impact. Within a year of envisioning the Franklin Woman, she launched a website that will become the big social enterprise that it is now almost 10 years later. Melina talks about how she made a very strong point of creating a self-sustainable business against the stereotype that women-based issues are not revenue-generating or against the stereotypes of leaning on charity and eternal grants for social enterprise starting to make an impact in health. From side hustle to full-time job, she took the leap that many founders will have to take at some point when times become a limiting factor to the growth of the business. Watch this space. You can visit the Franklin Women website. Just Google Franklin Women. That's Franklin, F-R-A-N-K-L-I-N, women, Franklin women. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it. Tune in for monthly episodes. You can follow multiple hats, visit my website. That's angelicgreco.com.au or follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Just search for Angelic Greco. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to tell me about your story, leave me a message.